A reading from the second chapter of James, beginning with the first verse. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here please, while to the other one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. A reading from the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, beginning with the 24th verse. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. 
But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him. She came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon toward the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay hands on him. He took him aside in private away from the crowd and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute, mute to speak. The Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. It may seem silly to say, and maybe it is silly, but I thought that a Sunday when James was warning against paying attention to what people were wearing in church was a fabulous day to wear my funky white Adidas to preach in. Man, I love these shoes. Huh? Did y'all get a glimpse of those things? Look at that. Huh? Isn't that awesome? I have always loved these shoes, but I always felt like I wasn't cool enough to wear them. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I, just, I just never felt like I, I quite, quite measured up to having a Run DMC t-shirt and wearing a pair of these shoes. And then they went out of style for a while and they were gone. And then one day, my daughter and I were eating lunch together and an ad popped up on my phone that said that they were available again for men. Oh, son, we headed straight to the shoe store. I said, you think your dad could wear those? She said, why not? Why not? Why not? Somebody asked me one time about, about dress codes in church, and I said, just wear something. <laughs> I mean, that pretty much is the only dress code a church should have. What we should want is for people to be comfortable, right? If you're comfortable in a three-piece suit, then you should wear a three-piece suit. If you're comfortable in shorts and a t-shirt, then you should wear shorts and a t-shirt, because what God looks on is apparently the heart. And God knows the dirtiness that we try to cover up when we try to look good. You know what I mean by that? You ever had one of those days you were going into work, going to the neighbor's house, going somewhere else, and you knew that you had been less presentable in your character than you should have been, so you put your best clothes on to show up for a meeting or for a visit. 
I bet we've all done that. I bet we've all put on a tie at some point when we needed our boss to pay some attention to us that day because we had messed something up. Probably the chances are good that we've all played to people's prejudices to get something we want. James is warning us that people will play to our prejudices to get something that they want from us, but he's also warning us that favoritism is the enemy of mercy. Now what James is not saying is that the rich don't need God. Do you hear what I'm saying? He didn't say anything bad about this fellow showing up. What James is concerned about is the people who saw his gold rings and his purple robe and said, oh, we got to get this joker paying tithes. I have heard people say we can't minister to that community. They won't all give an offering. I have seen a church move because the complexion of its community was changing. Do you hear that, church? It cuts us off from mercy. I know of a church that I have personal relationship with that moved because its community turned black. That's true. Some of them said they didn't feel safe in the neighborhood anymore. Well, why did they not feel safe in the neighborhood? Was crime going up? No. I mean, people were stealing air conditioners from that church long before the community became different. There was something of a mistrust of a person of a different color, of a person who wore different clothes, of a preacher that wears Adidas in the pulpit. I've heard people complain about a pastor because they didn't like his voice. I said, really? Can God not use a horrible voice to transmit the Scriptures? Here we see Jesus open a mute man. He opens the deaf. For what purpose? To praise the dirt? No. To praise God. Favoritism is a sign of a dead faith. That's what James is saying to us. If a person walks in, dressed to the nines, gold hanging all over them, and we fawn over them and ignore the person who came in dirty, then what we have is not faith, but a country club membership. We're part of the in crowd. We belong here. But the other does not. Isn't that a terrifying thought? It's terrifying to me that so short in Christianity, a church was actually behaving this way. James isn't writing them a general statement. He's correcting them for something that has come to his attention, that this church has treated rich people as if they deserved to be there and treated the poor as if they didn't when they knew good and well that all Jesus did was travel around and witness to the poor and the outcast like a Syrophoenician woman that all of his followers would have said, Jesus, you can't be hanging out with her. She's not one of us. She's a dog, they called the Gentiles. The religiously perfect of the Judaic world who thought that if they did everything just right, if they took of everything just right, if they lived just right, kept every rule just right, then God would show them favoritism. Oh, Lord, help us all. 
My scriptures say that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, not for the select few. Does your scripture say the same thing? My scripture tells me that he died for all, not just for the select few. My scripture teaches me that when God looked down and saw all of us, he saw and knew that some of us would not respond to what Jesus did. And yet he sent the Son anyway to demonstrate that God so loved the world not the people of Manning United Methodist Church, not the people who have a good tailor, but God so loved the world that He gave His only Son for everyone, that the atonement of Christ is available for every single human being, no matter how filthy, dirty, or repugnant they may be to the people in the in crowd like me. Oh, church. We cannot lose sight of that. We cannot lose sight that we are not a church with a mission. It is the mission that has a church. And the mission is the coming of the kingdom of God, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in a world that is submitted to the kingdoms of the air, the princes and principalities of evil. That soaks up lust and wealth as if the world is going out of style. That leans into every person who can offer them something that they don't have. As if, oh, you are my favorite today. Oh, but God comes to those who can give nothing in return. Jesus comes to a woman who has nothing to offer. And gives her daughter life. He presses into that attitude of his religious community when he says to her, Why should I give the children's food to you, a dog? Oh, and she looks at him and she says, Oh, but Jesus, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. What does that say to us about who deserves God's mercy? What does that say to us about favoritism? What does it say to us about our presumptions of who is in and who is out? What does it say to us about the limitations we experience in our own thinking about who the church should be in ministry to? Because the church doesn't have a mission. It is part of the mission of God. The missio die, if I say it in Latin, it's more impressive, I'm told. We are called to continue the work of Jesus. The Son of God who touched people that His community said were off limits. You hear that? The Son of God who looked at a criminal hanging on the cross and said, You will be with me. Oh church, how dare we look at anyone and say they are not worthy of the message that we have. That they're not worthy to share in our fellowship that they're not worthy to be our friend, that they're not worthy to be held here and given the best seat in the whole house, which is right up front. Did y'all know that? It's those. <laughs> Who are we to decide 
who Jesus died for. We're measuring faith today. Just like last week when Jim helped me with that tape measure. We're measuring our faith. We're looking for a pulse. Asking ourselves, have we faith in Christ Jesus? Or have we faith in our goodness and our wealth? Does our faith have a heartbeat? Because dead faith is no better than no faith at all. Believing in Jesus because of what Jesus can give us is not faith. That's no different than treating Jesus like a cosmic vending machine that spits out get-out-of-hell-free cards if we put the right change in. Dead faith expects mercy because we're so great that God ought to be merciful to us. But a living faith sees ourselves as we are and rejoices that God could be merciful to us. That God desires us. That Christ died for me, even me, even you. Can you believe that? Knowing you at your worst, at the darkness of your heart when it's been as hard as it has ever been. He gave Himself to purchase you. Oh, what mercy you have received. Faith with a pulse expects mercy because God is merciful. Faith with a pulse expects Christ to do what Christ has said He will do. And favoritism is the exact opposite of that. Living faith remembers that even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs and understands that we are the favored dog who gets to eat the crumbs. Because God favors all. All. Any who will come. Any who will surrender. Any who are willing to experience God's embrace. Favoritism denies the mercy that we have experienced. When we allow ourselves to think that one person is more welcome here than another, we have lost touch with the mercy of Christ. We should take James's warning seriously. Because the work that we have been giving, given is a matter of life and death. My first class of ethics in seminary, my professor, the Reverend Dr. Dan Bell, who is one of the most brilliant people I have ever met, took that group of pastors and soon-to-be pastors over to Christ Chapel at the seminary. He sat down at the chancel railing and put us in the front pews. And he looked at us and said, you have the power to preach life and death. 
meaning that within us was the ability to preach people into a place where there was no life. To forget that we all are under a grace that we did not deserve and did not earn. And instead to teach people a kind of moral deism that says if we all live just right, Jesus will love us and let us into heaven. And truthfully what's happening is God is receiving all of us as people who do not deserve to be received because God is love and God is mercy. Being loving and being merciful is what God does. And if we refuse to do either one, if we refuse to serve someone because they're not like us, look like us in the same social bracket we are or same financial bracket, same denomination, same apartment complex, same area of town, any of that, if we refuse any of that, then we are denying what Jesus has done for us. That is the danger that James is pointing out to us. And what we are doing is rendering our faith mute. Because how can we really trust that Jesus is saving us if we don't think Jesus will save someone else? Because of who they are. And so he asks us, do you really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Do you really believe in one who died and was raised for you who don't deserve it and for me who deserves it even less? If you do, your faith will have a pulse. And you will desire to tell others of this Jesus by both word and deed. Now this has all been very important to our tradition. And the Reverend John Wesley who founded Methodism, he wrote about a means of grace, works of piety and works of mercy, he called them. Works of piety being things like worship and baptism, the things that we do here, right? The hearing of preaching, the searching of the Scriptures, but he also commended to us a practice called works of mercy. He said, here are some of them. Doing good. I mean, that's pretty general, isn't it? <laughs> But don't we know when something is good and when it's evil? When we do something for someone else and it's so that we can feel good, that's evil. If we go on a mission trip to Dubai or somewhere and we're going to do something because we feel good when we do it, we're doing it not to serve someone but to get something out of it. Remember Paul said, our Lord said, it's more blessed to give than receive. Doing good, the flavor of what we do is what matters. What's it done for? Who is it done for? Is it done to honor the one who was merciful to you? If you do something to honor one who was merciful to you as a way of showing mercy to someone else, then you are doing good and your faith has a pulse. And get this, when your faith has a pulse, it changes you. When you're walking around with your get out of hell free card in your back pocket and you don't think about Jesus for any other reason than that, then you're not really quite there there yet. Will that faith save you? I would say to James, probably so. But I would agree with James 
that there's a big difference in wondering if your faith will save you and knowing that you have faith in the one who will save you. And when we do good for others, what we really see in us is the fruit of a living faith. Do living treaties produce apples? Anybody know? Ever seen a peach pop off a dead peach tree? I haven't. And remember what James told us last week is we are being worked in so that we will become a yielded fruit. We are the fruit that the living vine is producing and we in turn produce fruit. So he calls on us to let our faith work not only in us but for the good of others. Because living faith is what makes a difference in the world. Living faith does good, as Wesley said. Living faith visits the sick. Living faith visits the imprisoned. Living faith feeds the hungry. Living faith clothes the naked. Living faith earns and saves and gives all it can. Living faith is communally seeking justice together for those who are oppressed and hurting. Because living faith resembles the life of Jesus who stood in front of a bunch of Jewish people and loved someone that they would have called a dog. Church, we must never, never, ever lose sight of that because when we do, we have lost our mission. And soon behind, we will lose our hope. Let us be a people whose faith has a pulse. Amen? Amen.